Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the creator of Create Tailwind, and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver. And with me today is my special guest, Brent Sprinkle. Brett. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Excited to be here today. Yeah, you know, um, I, I there's two things I always look for. One is when I'm looking for a book, you know, I love something that catches my eye. And then when I'm also looking for a book, I want something that's kind of recent because let's face it, we've had a lot happen in the last year. And if somebody's writing a book that was written, ten, and by the way, I love classic books, but if it was 10 years ago on a practical, you know, how to book, then wait a minute, did you, did you foresee us having this pandemic and all these <laughs> other consequences, right? But your book just came out in January and tell everybody what the, what the name of your book is. Billion Dollar Portfolio is the name of the book, Jim. Billion Dollar Portfolio. And I, I know that all of my real estate people in there in the, that are listening right now just turned up the volume and stopped doing what they were doing while they were going to listen because let's face it, who wouldn't want, if you're in real estate, who wouldn't want to have a billion dollar portfolio? That is the goal. Most people, when they start acquiring real estate, they try to set a goal for where they want to be. Some of the people set a billion dollars as their benchmark for success. And uh, that's a lofty goal, but there's a lot of people that have far exceeded that. And they've done it very easily and quickly, some of them. Some of them, it took them 30, 40 years. Some did it in five. It's remarkable. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, I want to I come back to that, Brent. But tell everybody a little bit about your journey to get into real estate and why you wrote the book and, um, and just kind of a little bit about you, your background. You're in, you're in California and El Segundo. I live in the Los Angeles area. Yes, I live in Manhattan Beach. Office is in El Segundo. I grew up in Pennsylvania and decided that I wanted to be an engineer when I was in high school. So went to college to get an engineering degree and uh, out of college wound up getting recruited to work on satellites out here in El Segundo for uh, Hughes aircraft, Hughes Space and Communications to be specific. So they brought me out here. I was working on DirecTV satellites in the late 90s. Um, I wound up getting laid off. Uh, a lot of that was because I turned out I was not a very good engineer. Uh, it, I got, didn't feel very challenged and I got very complacent and I think they realized that and they did me the best favor anybody could have done, which was showing me the door and that forced me to have to make a business decision. Good friend of mine, Kenny, um, had acquired a few apartment buildings back in the foreclosure era in the late 90s and I just watched his success at a very young age and thought, geez, I'd love to buy some apartment buildings, but how do I do that? I have zero money. And Kenny suggested get into brokerage because a lot of the brokers I've met are not very sharp and they're making great money and you've got some something working between your ears. So you could be able to do really well. So looked in the LA Times newspaper and saw an ad for commercial real estate brokers and their requirement was, uh, do you have a car? Um, can you get a real estate license? And are you willing to work for free? And I said yes to all three of those questions. And 
wound up getting a job busting my rear end for a year and a half before I started to make any money. And those were some very challenging, depressing times, uh, but started to make money and real quickly realized that as a salesman, you can make really great money. You can make a lot of money, which you just pay taxes on. And it's it's kind of like that uh, hamster on that wheel, right? You just keep running and running and running. And the minute you quit running, you're out of the game. So realized what, real quickly that the clients of mine uh, that were so wealthy did it because they bought these apartment buildings or shopping centers or office buildings and they weren't the sexiest investments. Um, it always seemed that they overpaid for the properties when they bought them. There was never any bargains, but over the long run, rents grew and the properties appreciated to the tune of 10, 20% a year. And they'd refinance, pull money out and go buy a new Ferrari. I mean, these guys were doing extremely well with one of the simplest, oldest investments in the world. And they took chances and risk buying them, but it worked out. And over the last 20 years, I've worked with some just rags of riches stories that were absolutely mind blowing. And people would ask me, you know, you worked with this guy, Bobby, he's got this insane billion dollar portfolio. How did this guy do it? What did he do? And I just had so many people ask me these questions about clients of mine. I just thought, you know what? I should write a book about this because these people I've worked with really are fascinating. The stories are amazing because if they did it, truly anybody could do it. And that was the inspiration for this book. It's not about me and what I've done. It's about these clients of mine and the success that they've had and how others can, can, can do the same exact thing. It's replicable. Yeah. I, I love that. I love also what you what you just said and that you that you echoed um, in the book is the stories um, is, are, are really how fast somebody has done. Like how fast have you seen somebody go from zero or close to zero? It doesn't have to be zero to a billion dollars. In the book, I highlighted a guy named Keith Wasserman from a company named Gelt. Keith's he's in his thirties. When he was 20 some years old, they started buying foreclosed apartment buildings up in Bakersfield, which is kind of an inland agriculture oil city in California. And at first they bought these, I think they bought a few with just money from their credit cards. I mean, it was unbelievable how they did it. And then they brought investors in because the investors saw how successful they were. And, and now these guys have a massive national portfolio from Los Angeles all the way out to the East Coast, and it's worth well over a billion dollars. And he's in his 30s. Uh, he doesn't own 100% of the real estate. He has investors in all of it, but the portfolio is valued at that. And he's very entrepreneurial, and he now has other businesses he's doing. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing what people can accomplish if they have a business plan, a goal, and find a way to execute on it, and more importantly, how to bring investors in afterwards. Yeah, you know, um, I uh, one of the quotes that you have um, in your book from Keith, he said, you can never have enough. I love what I do. I love making money. I love making my friends money. And, and this business is a safe way to make and preserve wealth. Yeah. You know, and, and I love that because, you know, he's saying, I love to make money. I also like to serve others that, uh, and and show them how to make money or make money with them or for them in a safe way, and then also preserve that wealth. So, you know, again, not very many people on, on listen that listen to this podcast, but we're told, give our money to somebody else, let them manage it for us, 
And then um, that, that our goal is to work for 20, 30, 40 years and then quote, retire. And uh, I live in Southwest Florida. So I see this every day is that, you know, retire, do nothing, play golf and just float into the, you know, and, and wait till, until you don't wake up the next day. I mean, it just sounds like such a depressing business plan. <laughs> You know, a life plan. It's not a business plan. It's just how you end. It's how you go off into the sunset. Yeah. But some people can do that. There's some people that are perfectly fine with that. That's yeah. probably actually probably 80% of the population. But 20% of the population, they need some challenge in their life. They need a purpose. They, they wake up in the morning. If they don't have something they have to accomplish that day, they're just a mess. I think that's you, I think that's me, but 80% of the population, I think it's perfectly fine retiring at 55, 60, 65, and hanging out at the golf course all day, watching the reruns and going to dinner at their favorite restaurant that they eat at three times a week. I mean, people, a lot of people are comfortable with that. Yeah, you know, um, that you're, you're exactly right. Some of the people that I know that are retired, it's almost like they wanna brag about what, how old they were when they retired, right? And what I always want to talk about is financial independence, because we don't really want to retire. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, regardless of what that is. Right. And um, that but when when I see somebody, it's there's actually was a study done. I can't remember the details, but it showed that people that retired at 55 versus 65 actually died. sooner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you have no no purpose in your life you're going to wind up going real fast I, I i featured a client in my book he's no longer alive but his name is henry weiss and the guy was he was in his 80s and i remember him stopping in my office the guy owned like hundreds of apartment buildings and he's like brent what do you have for sale and at that point i was still in my 20s and yeah. mr weiss like why why do you want to keep buying buildings he's like oh, my doctor told me i need to keep something you know something to keep me busy and i just thought okay well i guess this is giving him a purpose in life is keeping him alive yeah and he lived another four or five years but i thought this is probably the only thing this guy has going he has no hobbies there's nothing else of any interest in his life except acquiring real estate doesn't want to manage it doesn't want to deal with it once he buys it. he just likes finding deals it's just sort of the art of the hunt yep the chase he just loved that and, and a lot of people do they just search for the next deal that's how they get their kicks. That's what gets them excited is searching for the next thing to do. It's this hunter-gatherer approach. Obviously, these guys are hunters. Yeah. And there's other people that gatherers. There's the you know, Indians and or the, the cowboys and the sheriffs, as we call it in our business. And he's the cowboy. And the sheriff sits there and does all the bookkeeping and pays all the bills. And he's out there just wrangling the, uh, the cattle. So it depends on what you want to do and what your mindset is and how you're wired internally, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I I love that. I always I always tell my guys um, that my my uh, resignation will be in my obituary. So uh, you know, because because I always think to to you know to your point is if I was a professional golfer, which I love to golf, when would I want to retire? I would I would I would want to retire when I was eighty five or ninety five or whatever. What you'd, you'd want you know. to retire when you can't swing a club anymore, man. That's right. When I can't swing a club anymore, and I, by the way, I know guys that are eighty five and ninety that can still uh, play pretty good. Yeah. But um, so you know that 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 I, I I love that. So okay, let's without 
because I, I really think that if you're in real estate, you should read this book. And I think you're going to get some uh, some nuggets out of this, some examples, some motivation of people that have done it. And just like you said, if they can do it, why can't I? Tony Robbins always says, you know, if you want something, find out somebody that else that's done it, find out what they did and do that, right? Um, but one of the things that I think people get hung up on is your first chapter. And it's, what do I, what do you want to buy, right? Because everybody's got an opinion. You know, should it be mobile home parks? Should it be storage? Should it be multifamily? Should it be, you know, does it have to be in this part of the country or that part of the country? Or, you know, this is a bad market. Talk a little bit about what you've seen and what you've helped your clients do to get off that, that first step. So this is always one of the most interesting, complicated questions. And, you know, I, for a living, I still broker apartment buildings. That's my nine to five job. And every now and then I get a call from somebody who says, Hey, Brent, I was recommended to you. I've got X amount of money in the bank and I want to get into the business. What do I buy? Do I buy an apartment building? Do I buy a shopping center? Do I buy industrial? I don't know how to answer that question. It's kind of like saying, what kind of a wine should you try? I, I just like, I don't know. They're all commercial investment. So my general answer to that is what are they comfortable with? Do they live in an apartment when they were younger? Do they still live in an apartment? Do they work in an office building? Do they have any involvement at all in commercial real estate at all? Even if it's just they go to an office during the day to work at their nine to five job and they kind of understand how things go. And are they interested in that business? But the reality is you have to start small. It, there's no like small office buildings really, or there's a couple of them. You maybe try one of those. There's a lot of small apartment buildings out there, duplexes, fourplexes. But I think that's why most people get started buying apartment buildings because they own a house and eventually they buy another house and they rent the, other, the old one out or they buy a duplex. They're small investments and they're not that risky. So that's why most people start out buying residential real estate as their income, commercial real estate investment. So that's typically the answer is buy a small apartment building, but if they have access to small office buildings, small shopping centers, it's not a terrible way to go. But if you have a small office building with three tenants and one of them goes empty, you can't fill it up overnight. It could be ugly for six, 12, 24 months. So that's why that's sort of a riskier investment that's really more for a seasoned investor. So I typically tell people that if they're just going to start out with a small property to buy as their first thing, even just a rental house, just something to get the idea of renting a property, collecting rent, maintaining it, getting a mortgage, doing all of that for something that's not your primary residence. It's always a good way to get your foot in the door. Plus you can sell it easily and do a temporary exchange and go buy something else. If you decide you don't like the idea of doing rentals for housing, then sell it, go buy something else. You'll figure out a way to do it. But if you don't get started somewhere, you're never gonna get started. There's no perfect deal. You gotta get your feet wet. You gotta buy something. Yeah, you know, um, doctors are doctors before they're specialists, right? So, you know, you, you, you I, I remember when I was in my 20s and I, and I read some real estate books and I, and I didn't take any action. Part of it was I was convinced that, well, I couldn't paint this wall if I had to to make it look halfway decent. Or I like to make this joke. It's not a joke, but my wife wanted to hire a plumber to replace some toilet uh, seats, because she was, she was sure I, I couldn't do it. Okay. So that shows you my mechanical uh, ability. Um, and it's not far off from her, uh, her perception, but 
what I realized is that when I got my uh, first few rental properties is I didn't do any of that. I had a property manager, paid them. I, I think I negotiated at the 8%. It, I think it started at 10. And um, they did all of that. They did all of the accounting. They yeah. did everything. They just, you know, this was back in the day. They just sent me a check every month. Isn't that great? And, and I went, huh, I could do this. I just need more checks. Yeah. Right. And um, so what I love about that is, is two. So there's one excuse like, hey, I got to manage this. I got to do this. You know, no, you don't. Right. And you talk about that in the, in the middle chapters of the book. I don't remember exactly the chapter, but um, then, but you also talk about once you figure out what you want to buy, then it's kind of like, then there's the game begins, right? How do I get the money to buy it? Could I get the seller to, to finance part of it? You know, all of those games, right? Can I do some math with the seller to show them that, hey, they really would be what, better off to finance it for me because banks make money. I mean, that's why they're one of the nicest buildings in every town. So if you're going to be my bank. Would you do that, right? I want you to finance 100% of it. You want me to finance you know, you want to finance 50% of it or whatever it is. And we come to a number somewhere in between. But you talk about in the second chapter, kind of you start to talk about that money. Talk a little bit about some of the inventive ways or maybe somebody that started with nothing and didn't have any money to put in some creative ways that they made it work. Well, you, you have to start out with something. These buy with nothing down. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Meetings. I mean, that's, that's, mythical things that happened maybe back in the 1950s. It doesn't work anymore. So, and I specifically put this in the book. This is not how to buy your first deal. This is how to take your first deal and buy your second. So, I mean, most people, if they have it already, they should at least buy a house or a condo or something to live in. And then after a few more years, maybe they buy a larger house. And what do they do with the old one? If they, if, if they have the means, they can keep that one rented out for a few years and then sell that do 1031 exchange and go buy a larger property if they have a good source of income then they have money in their savings and they can go out and buy additional properties but you know the oldest trick in the book is just exchanging or refinancing and taking the refinance proceeds and buying another property those are obviously the two things that most people do but all these guys with billion dollar portfolios all at some point brought investors in whether yeah. it was their uncle their brother co-worker in the office their dentist i mean they brought somebody in a lot of them just found these investors by just talking to people and people find out about your deals that you do because people talk about the stocks that they buy that people love to talk about that stuff oh i bought amazon for 80 and now it's selling for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a share well, I mean, whatever. But if you tell somebody you bought a little apartment building for $500,000 and three years later, you sold it for one, two, that's like, wow. Next time you buy an apartment building, you know, let, let me know. Maybe I'll, you know, give you some money. I was going to go buy some Apple stock, but it seems super overvalued. So maybe I'll give you some money. Next thing you know, they've got two or three people who want to go in on their next deal. And uh, they get a phone call or they see an ad in the paper for a deal that they like and they've got some investors lined up and woohoo, they're just syndicated a deal. 
And that's, you know, once you do a couple of those things, you, you kind of get the fever for it. And that's going to become your probably your full-time career. And next thing you know, you're going to have this massive portfolio. And your investors are going to tell their friends and they're going to tell their friends. Next thing you know, you got a couple hundred people that want to give you, you know, money to go buy the next property. And you're going to have to start turning people down. Of course, at some point, the market will change and you can't get people these same yields and returns they were previously getting. But that's just the nature of the beast in anything you're doing. Yeah. You know what? I like what you said. And, and I'm glad you clarified that because I thought my question, I didn't want it to be the no money down question. What I meant more was Sorry. what you said there at the end is even if I don't have enough money to go buy a, you know, a, a hundred uh, door uh, multifamily property, I, I bet that there are other people that want to buy the same type of thing. So if, if, if I don't have any money at all, what I'm, what I get, what I would get really good at is finding properties and doing the due diligence and showing somebody why here, here's how we're going to, this is how this pro, this property is going to work. And here's how we're going to make money because the next step that you put in there. And I love that you put this in the beginning of the book is that equity, just like you said, and, and, you know, in California, and I lived in Colorado for 20 years, you have a lot of um, ups and downs in the real estate pricing, right? So when you buy a property, it goes up, you have equity, take, you use the equity to go buy something else or create equity by improving the property, right? I mean, like you, you say somewhere in the, in the book, and I don't remember where it's at again, I'm sorry, but but you said something like that's a simple old game, but it still works, right? And it, yeah, I mean, you still own the real estate. I mean, the the trick is not to squander the refi proceeds. And a lot of people do. Right. That's really what happened in the subprime meltdown is you had these people that bought, they bought a $300,000 house and they got a $340,000 loan to buy it. And it, also they own a house, they got 40 grand of cash and they're like, wow, this is great. I got $40,000. I'm going to go buy a new SUV. Yeah. And then, you know, a year later, like I'm going to go buy another house. I mean, I had a, I wouldn't call him a friend, but someone I knew who lived in Vegas and bought like 10 houses that way. And of course yeah. he lost every single house he got foreclosed on. Every lost every house. Yeah. And I think the moral of the story here is if you're going to get high leverage loans, you better not squander all the money. You better put into a safe investment and do something logical with it because that's how you keep growing your empire. That's how you protect yourself from the rainy day. I mean, it will come. There will be a down, you know, a down cycle. It happens. We thought it was going to happen a year ago with COVID kicked in. It turned out it kind of did the opposite, but that could be, you know, a variety of things, including them lowering interest rates and sending everybody billions of dollars with stimulus checks. Yeah, so the bottom line is you just have to be smart. If you're, if you buy a building for a million dollars, a couple of years later, it's appraised at one four and you can refinance it and pull $250,000 out. What are you going to do with that money? You should go put buy it, you know, re reinvest it into a new deal, spend some of that money fixing up the property you refinance. And, and that's something that people neglect to do. You pull that money out, maybe go spend $25,000, $50,000 on infrastructure in that building, put a new roof on it, fix some windows, fix some plumbing issues, improve the property. Because the last thing you want to do is just milk the thing of, of some equity and not improve it and leave it worse off. So it's, it's important that you go back and 
reinvest in your own properties periodically, but also keep growing your investments by buying more and more and more. This is how people become quote unquote slumlords is because they're just focused on buying the next deal. They're not really focused on management and, and keeping up the properties they already bought. So those properties fall into negligence. So it's, it's just a different mentality. Some people just refuse to do it. They pay the price later down the road, but some people, their attitude is they're going to buy a building, keep it for three years and sell it. So they're not going to spend a dollar on it during those three years because they're just going to sell the property anyways. What's the point of putting a brand new roof on? Well, I'm only going to keep it for three years. That's not my approach, but there's people out there that all they do is they buy and sell, buy and sell. Their investors make huge returns. They pay taxes on them mostly, but if that's their business plan, so be it. It's different if you're buying with your own money or a couple of investors and you're buying with the, the plan, the goal of keeping the properties for 10, 20 years, at that point, you, you're forced to really maintain the properties, upgrade them, which is, makes it a little bit more challenging to keep reinvesting, buying new, new properties. But you just have to be disciplined, put things in writing about what you're gonna do and how you're gonna spend the money and um, just try to be prudent about that. And but at the same point, you have to be aggressive about looking for your next deal constantly. Yeah, I like that. You know, <clears throat> I've always been a cash flow guy. So I'm always just looking for, I'm looking for things that I'm going to keep, especially in today's interest rate environment. I want to lock in and, um, and, I, and I just want cash flow. You know, I want more and more and more cash flow because, you know, something that I learned from Robert Kiyosaki a long time ago was I could have a, you know, $15 million house, as long as I have other assets that are paying for it. And I don't yeah. have to go out and, you know, and make the money to, to pay for my house. Um, but I, you know, I, I remember when I used, I, I loaned the equity in our primary house one time to a business partner at like 15%. And it, when I did the math, you know, it, it paid the payment. And so I thought, well, wait a minute, I just need a bigger loan and I'll have as big a house as I want, you know, and, and, uh, and, and then, and then I, then I kind of, uh, evolved into, okay, now I need an asset like real estate to, to do that same thing because it grew and everything else. So, um, but when I look at real estate and I look at all of the advantages and you, and you, you touched on this, but the, the tax advantages and everything else. Um, depreciation, accelerating the depreciation, 1031 exchanges. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you got to learn that game. And, and, and I would just tell you, Brent, I, I would tell everybody they should read your book because it gives you, it's, it's, a, it's a roadmap on what you need to do. You could go, you know, it's okay. These are the steps. Now, you got to go out and do the steps and you got to find the right people and everything else. And you even say that, but then you give an example of people that have done it and some examples of their success. And so I think it's motivating and it's a system all at the same time. So um, I applaud you on the, on the structure of the book. Um, it's, it's really cool the way that you put it together. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. So, you know, um, I, I love, I love, um, I love your enthusiasm for real estate. Um, I, I, uh, I love that you live in Manhattan beach. Now, again, I think I told you before we started recording, I haven't been back, but I used to, I used to between El Porto and, and the pier and, uh, like, uh, two, six. And I mean, uh, and through there, I, I used to try to surf. I was not very good at it. Okay. But, um, 
but um, there, I would only get like a couple of, I only had a couple of dollars every day, you know, and I'd go from like six to like four o'clock in the afternoon sometimes. And, and right above the pier was a little place called Zeppi's Pizza. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it's still yeah. there, but yeah, they changed the name. It's called like Manhattan Pizzeria or something like is that. Is that what it is? And yeah. I'll tell you what that that uh, that that I I would not have survived some of those days without Zeppi's Pizza and their seventy five cent slice or whatever it was back in the day. Well, the old days, yeah. I think it's like my kids go down there. I think it's like four dollars a slice now. It's, <laughs> That's it's funny. It's, it's got a little more money. Yeah, yeah. Well, Manhattan Beach, and like I said, Manhattan Beach is is uh, you know I live in Florida. I live close to the water, and my wife's from Florida. But um, I tell her, honey, you know, there's the the waves and the beach and the sunsets in California. It's tough to beat. But um, all right, Brent. So I, I really appreciate all of your advice. I always like to ask people a couple of questions. the The first one is. If you could only retain the knowledge of from one book that you've read, what would it be? I love this question. And I always tell people that the book that to me really made the most difference, it's not a real estate book. It's just good old Dale Carnegie's, you know, making friends, influencing people. Love it. You know, human communication skills are the most important thing. And when I got into this business as an engineer, I struggled with being able to really communicate with people. It was just from my engineering background and couldn't relate to people and just phone calls, conversations were just horribly awkward. And at some point, someone sat me down and said, you need to read this book and you need to just kind of warm up a little bit and just listen to people and ask questions and just be more engaging by really asking them about their lives. So that really helped. And I try to go back every couple of years and reread it as bizarre as that sounds because I always just forget about the basic things of just communications. And it's the simplest thing that makes us either win or lose business while we're talking to somebody. And um, it's just unbelievable how that happens. But that's the biggest thing, in my opinion, is just being able to have great conversations with people that can lead to you doing business. No, that's awesome. And I, and I agree with you on going back and rereading um, books. I was just listening to an Earl Nightingale um, recording. Um, and it just reminded me that some of these basic things, you have to remind yourself, you gotta write it down. And, and uh, the, sometimes you gotta listen to something or read something four or five, six times for it to really sink in. And, and I think that book, I, I remember reading that book in my twenties and you know, thinking to myself the same thing is, man, I got to get better at that. I got to get better at that. And every time I kind of got away from it and I was in sales. And so every time I wanted to tell everybody everything I knew about my, my uh, subject, I would always struggle. And then when I would just kind of get to know people and find out really what was important to them. And, you know, then all of a sudden it seemed like it was the easiest thing in the world. Um, people love talking about themselves. And if you can get people talking about themselves, oh, they they love you. For no reason, except that they're talking about themselves and they love themselves and they're going to start loving you for that same reason. It's a bizarre thing. I, it makes no sense, but it works. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My, I have a, a 12 year old granddaughter um, and, and she lives with us and full time and we live in an older community. So I said, I want you to start a podcast and go around to all these obviously successful people that live in this neighborhood and ask them one question. Hey, I'm going to do a podcast. I just want you 
you know, the, it's a one question podcast, which is what advice would you give somebody my age? If you, you know, starting out at 12 years old, what, what advice, what's the best advice you could give me? And, and we're going to start doing it. She's, Believe it or not, the dog walking business is pretty lucrative down here. So at 12 years old, she's kind of kicking it in at, you know, sometimes $40 to walk a dog. So uh, year old, I think I'm going to have to get her to do this. This is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, so uh, thinking of advice, Brent, what was the best advice somebody ever gave you? The variety of advices were one, anything that you start at you're probably not going to be good at it. And the only way you could good at it is by practice. When I got started in this business, as I mentioned, I, I, all that I could do was just pick up the phone and call people. And I was terrible at it, but I did it over and over and over again. I got help on it. Eventually I got good at it. Golfing, you golf. It's the most difficult thing to learn. It looks so basic, but you do it over and over and over again. And eventually you're going to get decent enough that like at least you can go out and play uh, around a golf and not be embarrassed everything takes practice and you just can't give up on anything investing it's the same thing my the biggest piece of advice i got investing was start small work your way up make small investments at first and they'll grow larger and you won't they won't feel like large investments later on so you have to start small but if you don't, but the, the last piece of advice that somebody gave me was you have to get in the game. If, if you're not out there trying to make investments, writing offers, calling brokers, underwriting deals, you're never going to buy anything. You yeah. have to quit making excuses. I don't want to buy this deal because the market's too hot. I don't want to buy this deal because it's priced too high. You have to jump in and buy something. You have to make an investment and you have to quit making excuses about why not. So those are really the three big pieces of advice that, that people gave me. I don't remember who gave them to me, but they're all in the book because that was really what I wanted people to know is they got to take steps to do it and they got to get in the game. Yeah. You know, um, one thing I really love about the way, and I have the Kindle version of your book, but when I love that you, you put your, you put your phone number in there somewhere. I'm not sure where it's at, but you put your, you know, I love that. I mean, that's, that's being authentic and it's being real. And, you know, in today's society, that's hard to find Brent. So um, tell everybody one more time how to find your book um, and then, um, and just give us the, the, the name and how to find it again. One more time. So Brent Sprankle is a name, the book really simple billion dollar portfolio you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it Barnes and Nobles. It's out there. But if you go to Amazon and punch my name in or just put in billion dollar portfolio, it'll pop up. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Brent. Well, thank you so much for being on. Um, and audience, as always, nothing good happens in the herd. You got to break away. Until next time, I'm Jim Oliver. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.